hundreds and hundreds, $750,000 in $20 bills wrapped in elastic bands was delivered to a gambler at the casino. And this was a regular occurrence. Today, I sit down with Scott McGregor, a former Canadian military intelligence officer, to discuss the full extent of Chinese Communist Party infiltration into Canada, including recent reports of Chinese election interference and how this impacts the U.S it all started to come back to the same people. The gambling piece, real estate, espionage, all of those things started to come back. They were all connected. McGregor is the co-author of the new book, The Mosaic Effect, how the Chinese Communist Party started a hybrid war in America's backyard. Canadians believe everyone has good intentions, not realizing Canada's sitting on a vast natural resource reserve from oil, LNG, forestry, fresh water, this is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Scott McGregor, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the interview. Scott, well, first of all, welcome from Vancouver, Canada. And we've been hearing a lot here in the U.S. about election interference in Canada and Chinese Communist Party involvement. What's going on over there? So the public has now seen that the Chinese United Front is influencing a lot of what's happening um, politically. Our intelligence agency, CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, uh, has released some documents. They've been leaked to a, a reporter. Some of the politicians in ridings in uh, Papineau and in Montreal um, received donations from United Front-related um, entities and the money stemming back to um, China and uh, the diaspora that they uh, are, are attempting to control. This has been going on for quite some time um, and the, the intelligence services, uh, some law enforcement and certain individuals that have been trying to raise awareness around the issues with the United Front Work Department. What the intelligence agency is saying is that they've briefed the Prime Minister's office uh, on the information that is in these documents and that there were recommendations made not to have one of the um, politicians, uh, you know, be, be backed and into that position. Um, Han Dong is the name of the individual. And that's what's really starting to cause concern that, you know, people knew about this. The intelligence service knew about this. And in fact, one politician went so far as to say, we should actually have an inquiry into the intelligence agency. You know, people are calling for a public inquiry into what happened. And the prime minister right now is... is um, diverting attention and saying that he'll investigate and he will use his um, appointed intelligence um, associations and what was supposed to be like an oversight committee, but they're appointed by the Prime Minister to look into it. So it's basically the Prime Minister saying he'll investigate himself and people are not happy with that and not satisfied. Well, you're telling me that this is something that we've been aware of for some time, but somehow has, we've kind of lost focus. So, so tell me about that. This is something you actually know quite a bit about, I think. The uh, elements of hybrid warfare, which is, you know, one of the big ones is sharp power, which is political influence and leveraging, um, propaganda. And that's where we see the United Front Work Department. And, and just very briefly, Scott, if you could just jump in and remind people what the United Front Work Department is of the Chinese Communist Party. So the United Front Work Department um, is it's called the magic weapon. Um, that's what Xi Jinping has titled it. And it's basically an element that is designed to do two things, intelligence and propaganda. So they go out into the world and the community. And to be honest, Vancouver is a ground zero in Canada, likely in North America. Um, and it's there to collect information and bring it back to the CCP 
about um, you know what opportunities there are, technologies, um, a lot of the espionage pieces, um, and that correlates to um, uh, the spy agencies within China and also the People's Liberation Army and others that use this information. And then the propaganda piece is trying to influence and leverage uh, whatever they can, whether it's corporately or politically, um, in favor of the, uh, the objectives of Beijing. And so this is a large organization. Um, in Vancouver, we see two components, a Cantonese-speaking component and a Mandarin-speaking component. And at one time, they were vying for, you know, information and leveraging and uh, to do good for, for Xi. And then Xi kind of stepped in and said, no, you're going to work together. And that has happened recently. This stuff was done overtly. And now we're seeing a lot more done covertly. A lot of cover-up is happening. And this is being um, revealed now through the CSIS leak. That information was available and not many people knew about it and nothing was being done. And that was where the leverage took place, that you're able to leverage the politicians, cover things up, and kind of stop the uh, awareness from gaining strength uh, in Canada, but also in the United States. So, and you also mentioned that this, uh, you know, political influence is one component of hybrid warfare. And you also mentioned unrestricted warfare, uh, which is, of course, this uh, book that was written back in 1999 by two Chinese colonels explaining that every field of in interest is warfare, basically from the perspective of the PLA, or be that became kind of the doctrine. But hybrid warfare, what, what's that relation? What does that mean exactly? So hybrid warfare is... is, is almost synonymous with unrestricted warfare. They're basically the same, the same concept. Um, it, it became a military term. Um, and when I started working with the, uh, the RCMP, it was something that I, I visited and started to bring to prominence to, to see that the connectivity between the different elements within hybrid warfare, so sharp power, which is the political piece, soft power, which is what I w would term economic subversion of corporate and uh, industrial critical infrastructure, that type of thing. And then uh, transnational organized crime, and that includes threat finance, money laundering, um, narcotics trafficking, uh, all of that type of stuff, and how they, they interact. And this is the funding of different operations that are run by the United Front and also other Chinese organizations within the target country. And this is what you call in the mosaic effect the unholy trinity, I believe. Yes, the unholy trinity is, is really the, connect, the connectivity between the Chinese state, um, so nation-state-sponsored activity, um, the business piece, the tycoons uh, that are, are, are buying up different industries and businesses, and then also the organized crime figures like the triads out of Hong Kong and, and others. I'll just mention, you also mentioned the RCMP. Some of our non-Canadian viewers might not be familiar. So, you know, in Canada, we have CSIS, which is the intelligence agency, and then we have the RCMP, which is the enforcement agency. Um, yes. Right? The Royal Canadian Mounted Police are an agency that does municipal, regional, and federal policing. So the, the main component to consider there is the federal piece. So they are a lot like the FBI in that sense. Um, and, and they have all the, the powers that the FBI would have, yeah. But then, but the intelligence piece that the FBI has been doing is, is would be with CSIS, not with them. So they have to kind of Correct. work together. Yes, C CSIS is a, a domestic intelligence agency, and that's they look inwardly. They're, they're not um, an international spy agency like the CIA. 
So what is the mosaic effect? The mosaic effect um, is a, an intelligence technique, and it's basically taking disparate pieces of information. And you may not know what it means at the time, but as you're collecting this information, um, and you gather more and more, it starts to create a picture for you. Um, and that's, that's basically um, how we identify in military intelligence, you know, what's going on in the battlefield. And we, we can see a structure of what elements are out there and what they do and who they belong to. In law enforcement, it would be, um, you know, different entities that were conducting, you know, drug deals and, and that kind of thing. And where are they getting the, the drugs from? And suddenly that starts to create a picture that these elements are working together or have the same supplier facility facilitators. We can see definitively how these things are connected and that picture is getting stronger and larger by the day. So we're going to talk about all this and so but before we go there um, you know you've been, been an intelligence guy for decades and maybe give us just a picture of your career span up to today. Uh, certainly. Um, yeah, I first joined the military in uh, 1989. Um, I've served in the, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force. Um, my last position was, was in intelligence, uh, where you have to be selected to be able to get into the intelligence in Canada. It's not something you can just sign up to be. And yeah, I, I worked in military intelligence for 15 years. And you know, my career saw me in, uh, in Afghanistan, uh, doing a lot of uh, different work with uh, uh, counterterrorism and that type of thing. Uh, and then I was a, a diplomatic defense attache to the Kim Bahrain through um, COM US NAVSAN, so the, the Central Command's Navy headquarters, which is located right in the Gulf there. Um, and that is really somewhere that uh, I started to work with American agencies quite a bit. We were asked to help develop a pilot project uh, to prove transnational narco-terrorism. Uh, Transnational narco-terrorism at the time was not believed to actually occur, mainly because terrorists were receiving so much attention following 9-11 that no one thought these large um, criminal organizations would want to work with them. And that makes sense because no one wants to have the heat on them when they're trying to do these things. But again, the people that control the routes for smuggling narcotics, etc., um, Hezbollah had come out and say, stated that we're going to conduct hybrid warfare we are going to fundraise, we are going to use everything possible to make money because we have sanctions against us, etc. So what we did was we were able to identify uh, a vessel that had terrorists and narcotics on it and that began this new project um, that I believe the DEA headed up. Um, and I left the military and um, moved on to the RCMP uh, where I, you know, I, I came in and uh, was identified as an intelligence person and, uh, but I was under operations and not intelligence. So they asked me to take a look at a few things. One of the big ones was a pilot project looking at conversions between transnational organized crime and national security. Now, one thing for the viewers to understand is that the five eyes, which is Australia, Great Britain, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States, um, we have an intelligence agreement to share information. All of the five eyes have a strategy on um, transnational organized crime, identifying it as a threat to national security, all but Canada. So what that does is it allows the different elements within that country, so within the United States, military and law enforcement are able to share information that isn't just well, law enforcement sensitive, it's national security sensitive, and that's classified information. We don't have that in Canada. The ability to share that information is very limited. 
um, and it's not widespread, um, and it's not commonly understood even by, you know, some of the top people within law enforcement. So there was an issue there, and what I was able to do was take a look at the files in the Lower Mainland, which is the majority of RCMP files in the entire country, and we identified a lot of different elements, um, entities within the Chinese, Iranian, and cartels that were working together. So this started to um, gain traction, and um, what I was working towards was bringing in some intelligence uh, colleagues of mine my, in, within my network uh, into the headquarters in Vancouver and start to understand more about the threat emanating from north of the border. The Americans were, were blown away by the level of corruption, criminal activity, connectivity, and a lot of this information was briefed to the intelligence community within the United States. All of the agencies were made aware. Um, I believe some of this information was briefed in the Pentagon. Uh, and the people that I was working with here in D.C. actually came to Canada to talk to the agencies in Ottawa, so at the national level. So that was quite the movement. Um, we began doing some think tanks in classified areas to start to discuss, you know, what was going on and, and uh, how it connected to the different parts of the Five Eyes. Australia was impacted. New Zealand, we see, is, is heavily impacted. The United Kingdom still has issues with what's going on with the Chinese. And the other piece was how what's happening in Canada is impacting the United States, how this heavy presence in Canada is a, is a threat to the United States. And so those things really started to come home. Um, unfortunately, uh, this was cut short. Uh, I ended up leaving the RCMP and moving to the the provincial government where I worked for the Attorney General uh, and I created a, an intelligence unit with, uh, with my boss at the time who uh, was overseeing, uh, it was a small unit. And yes, what we, what we were looking at was the gaming policy enforcement branch, um, gambling integrity. The reason that's significant is um, one of the big ways to identify bad guys um, operating in the area was what we call the soft underbelly. People like to mingle, especially in the, um, the spy world and the, uh, the criminal world. One of the ways they do that is, is through casinos. And they develop guangxi, so the networking and relationship building. And that occurs in these locations. The other aspects of the gambling is things like black safari. So you're able to acquire things that are um, uh, illegal, black Black, black bear paws in a restaurant, for instance, they sell for $500 a paw. So we had a huge piece on the conservation side where black bears were being wiped out within the province. So there's a lot of things that kind of overlaid prostitution, narcotics, whatever gamblers wanted. And a lot probably dominant was the Chinese diaspora, a lot of overseas Chinese coming in, uh, whale gamblers is what they were calling them. And they were mingling with criminals and receiving money and this became an actual project with the RCMP, the largest money laundering case in Canadian history called ePirate. Um, took three years and a lot of effort, but it was the charges were stayed. It was followed up by another project called eNationalize, and eNationalize was very similar, and it also was looking at the gambling, the connections between um, different Chinese entities, um, and the money, and how it got there, and where it went, and what it was funding. So. What we learned later was that that information led to connections between the United Front Work Department and these criminal organizations. So this goes back to the hybrid warfare model where you're fundraising 
and you're using organized crime to get that money and fund uh, different operations um, you know, from propaganda, from being able to give bribes to lots of different um, ways to use that money. So what that led to, um, you know, I, I ran into some trouble trying to raise awareness within government. Um, at the time, we had a liberal government. I was under the Ministry of Finance, and there was no interest because there was about $1.3 billion a year going into the government from drug sales such as fentanyl. Um, and fentanyl was one of the, the major concerns within the community. We, we were losing 1,000 people a year to fentanyl overdoses. Um, and that really struck I'm going to jump in for a yeah. sec, because you mentioned that the fentanyl, fentanyl sales, $1.3 billion worth of fentanyl sales, the money from that was coming to the government. So the fentanyl sales didn't, didn't total $1.3 billion. The, the money coming in um, into the casinos was $1.3, about $1.3 billion in revenue. Um, now, the portion of that that came from narcotic sales is is unknown. They're, but the point is, the thing that you haven't mentioned, I think, yet, is that that this the casinos are a major money laundering uh, pathway, correct? Right? Yeah. Correct. And the money's not necessarily laundered in the casino. The casino is a, fac a facilitator of the process. So that's something that was identified as being called the, the Vancouver model. And the Vancouver model basically is money is coming from China, but it's not really coming from China. It's moved from one entity, so one whale gambler, into a criminal's account who is resident in Vancouver. And then when that whale gambler arrives in Vancouver, he is delivered drug money. So a lot of the things that are in Canadian media and uh, actually in, in American media as well, because there, I, I was actually briefing around the country in the National Gaming Intelligence Sharing Group, uh, which, which was looking at what's going on. Uh, with regards to money laundering and illegal, you know, activity. So that money was shifted to the gambler when he arrived at the casino in hockey bags. Hundreds and hundreds, $750,000 in $20 bills wrapped in elastic bands was delivered to a gambler at the casino. And this was a regular occurrence. They were bringing in suitcases and shopping bags, and it was never questioned. This money was just accepted by the casinos, and then it didn't matter if they lost the money because this was the concern is that the money laundering was happening in the casino. That didn't matter. The money was already moved. So basically, the criminal is washing the money in China and using the drug money that he's receiving in Vancouver to fund the operation. And that connectivity between those entities is quite extensive. Um, I do talk about it in the book um, at length. Um, and that sort of set the stage for other agencies to start looking into it deeper. Um, unfortunately, in Canada, we haven't had much success on the enforcement side, um, but we have been raising some awareness. And now we're gaining traction through this political interference piece of the hybrid warfare, and it's coming full circle. I'm trying to picture here, you know, these duffel bags, hockey bags of money kind of rolling in, and no one thinks this is at all odd. So when questions were raised about, you know, the fact this money was coming in, it was kind of explained away as being cultural, that um, the Chinese whales did, didn't like to use credit cards, um, and that they, they always had cash because they were afraid of the, the regime coming in to take their money. So here you are in Canada, which is, you know, not China, and no one's coming to take your money because there's actually no laws that allow them to do that. You know, they would say they own a, uh, a restaurant or a, a shopping center or something like that, and they get a lot of $20 bills. 
but I mean, I don't think anyone has $750,000 in $20 bills. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Um, but that was a subject matter expert on money laundering that was hired by the Lottery Commission, who, you know, runs the operations of the casinos. Um, so it was kind of explained away. The fact of the matter is, is that at the same time, all this money that's coming in is benefiting the corporation that runs it, um, the people that own the casinos, the brick and mortar, they're, they're not upset that lots of money's coming in. The government's not upset. We have all this revenue coming in. They're getting a cut. They're, yeah. they're getting this, this money. Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on in terms of the amount of money that's coming in and who's involved and, and why there's willful blindness to, to not do anything about it. Um, but yes, they were coached. The, the big whales that came in, who were, a, you know, the law enforcement was aware of who these people are, um, are coming in and being interviewed and told, you know, hey, can't do this anymore. You can't bring these big duffel bags in. So there's a move towards another method. And that method is um, bank drafts. So one of the ways a lot of money was used at different levels, not just from the, um, the criminals. So there's a, a major one, it was called Silver International. It was run, uh, this is all open source now, by a fellow named Paul King Jin. Um, and was investigated and the charges were stayed and so you know basically got away with something in my opinion uh, they were coached to go to a money service business and take their money and get bank drafts well some of these bank drafts were third-party bank drafts so it's for somebody else but you took it to the casino and it's two hundred thousand dollars there's a quite a case there with uh, an immigration and real estate lawyer named Hong Wo who um, had her trust account compromised by someone that worked for her. Now, this individual is connected to these, uh, you know, networks and uh, organized crime and everything else. And, and they moved $7.5 million in bank drafts through the casino in two and a half months. And on her application, it's saying that she's a student. So what kind of student has $7.5 million to go to a casino with um, and no questions were asked. So it wasn't until the police get involved that suddenly there's this, you know, this interest in that kind of thing. Um, the bank draft issue is ongoing. And while I was working with the gaming policy enforcement branch, my, my question was, why are we not doing electronic transfers? Why, if you have to take their account information, regardless of where they're from, they have to have a Canadian institution on their bank to have this account. Why wouldn't you just e-transfer the money? Like people do every day when they're making purchases, you know, they're, 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 they're e-transferring money. Well, that became an issue because no one wanted to um, have a trail, in my opinion. Um, and what they would say is it takes too long because it, the transfer coming from overseas, and I'm like, well, there is no overseas. They have to have a financial institution. It states right in the policy right here in Canada. There should be no delay whatsoever. The other thing they would say is they don't want to wait. The gambler comes in, he wants to gamble right now. You know, he's our VIP. We want to take him upstairs. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, this is, we're talking about money laundering and, and, and the issues that are around it and the concerns. The, you know, the public's aware, the government's aware, law enforcement's aware. Why aren't you doing the things necessary to put this in play? And that's still not in place. They also don't use credit here. Uh, in British Columbia, they do in Ontario, and credit is a whole other issue of how that gets done, how money gets moved. Um, but being coached on how to move that money 
uh, using illicit money service businesses, meaning they're unregistered. Sometimes money services businesses are in the back of a nail salon, and the nail salon is always closed except when somebody shows up that wants to get money, uh, or a travel agency. And these are known um, you know, fronts for organized crime. Well, that's where this money's coming from. So there were some you know, rules that were put in place to make it look like uh, something was being done about the money. And this was explained in the public inquiry that, um, after I had briefed the Attorney General, um, you know, started the ball rolling. And it, it really looked at money laundering in its totality, but it was kind of whitewashed. Everyone was trying to protect themselves. Um, when they got on the stand, you know, they're more concerned about being culpable than they were about finding a solution to what's going on and doing the right thing. And I mean, I was never called to the inquiry. I was never asked to testify. I don't know how that's possible when I was the only intelligence officer in gaming in Canada. And I'm the one that raised, you know, raised the alarm on this whole thing. And that's part and parcel for uh, whether that's corruption or oversight. Um, I'll leave that to, to others to decide. In terms of, you know, national security threat, um, this, all this type of activity, where do you rate the Chinese Communist Party on the scale of threats to Canada, to the U.S.? I, I would say that they're the, the top of the scale. Um, Russia is, is of concern, but is nowhere near the scope and scale of China. China adopted hybrid warfare and, and kind of took it to a new level. And that's the difference between, um, you know, Hezbollah. But they also work together. So this is this is this um, coalition of, of nation states that are conducting hybrid warfare, and that that permeates down. It's it's involves organized crime. It involves the political leveraging, and so we see this connectivity at all levels between these different elements. The cartels, the Iranians, and the Chinese work together extensively in the region that I'm in, across Canada, throughout the United States, um, and those elements all work together. And the evidence is there. It's just a matter of trying to get um, people together to try and, and fight it. So one of the things I was very surprised to learn about, and this is in the first chapter of The Mosaic Effect, is something called Operation Dragon Lord. And this was a U.S. operation looking at all sorts of infiltration in Canada and that it was posing a threat to the U.S. And this was 25 years ago. <laughs> so, you know, news to me, tell me about this. So the document that you're talking about was um, revealed to me a few years ago um, from an intelligence source. And it, um, it is a, an operation that follows a previous Canadian operation um, called Sidewinder. And Sidewinder was a classified report that was declassified and um, was revealed on the open internet. Uh, so this was an RCMP, so the, the federal police, working in conjunction with the CSIS, the, the intelligence agency within Canada. And that information talked about Chinese tycoons um, working with organized crime, the triads, in Canada, influencing um, political entities, uh, but also looking at critical infrastructure and business in Canada and how it was corrupting and influencing entities therein. Operation Dragon Lord was a multi-agency under the Department of Justice, uh, which included the FBI and the CIA and the NSA, looking into the threat that was posed by Canada 
um, to the United States because of this infiltration. And like you said, this was 25 years ago. This is quite some time ago. This is, you know, this is remarkable. It's never been discussed before, um, the fact that the United States was looking at Canada as this major national security threat. And what's happening there has, has been progressing for 25 years. We have complete saturation in Canada of, of these elements in every aspect of our business, our critical infrastructure, uh, law enforcement. It's in everything that we're doing right now. And it does pose a significant threat to the United States. And the United States, um, as we see now, is looking at decoupling from China. And this, this uh, political interference piece that we see uh, being raised in Ottawa uh, from this leak has now stirred this all up again. And we're revisiting things that we saw 25 years ago um, and that I've been trying to, you know, raise awareness about and gain traction on for at least the last five years. What does it mean, achieved saturation? That, that sounds like, this feels very, like a very strong word. But saturation really is everywhere we looked, every piece of information we saw, the entity, where they were involved, it all started to come back to the same people the same threat streams, if you will. If they're into the gambling piece or real estate, uh, espionage, all of those things started to come back. They were all connected. These people were all intertwined and it caused us to see that it didn't matter where we looked. If you lifted the carpet up over here, there they were. Um, and so law enforcement uh, is aware, but they're very constrained in what they can do, both by legislation, um, the laws, um, for instance, in British Columbia, a police officer cannot charge someone. They can recommend charges, but the Crown Council decides whether or not those charges will be processed. So this is where we've ran into a lot of issues that the, um, the confidence in getting things to um, enforcement is not something that the police feel that they can achieve. It's, it feels like it's biting off more than they can chew. And so that's caused a lot of issues and a lot of discontent uh, amongst law enforcement, um, security and intelligence and defense. What can we do about this? And we're just limited. So without a government that's going to back those things, and this is what we're seeing with this political influence piece, is that that, that push has been held off for so long and we are not able to. The United States is starting to get concerned about those things and that is raising an awareness within the United States about what's going on in Canada and how it can impact them. And it will definitely impact them. So, you know, people both in the U.S. and in Canada are kind of baffled by the level of, I guess, ignorance about Chinese Communist Party effectively infiltration through this, you know, I guess, toxic, you call it unholy mix of the intelligence services, the triads, the organized crime, and then business. That mix in itself isn't something that we discuss a lot over here, frankly, right? Is this, does the same thing exist here? Very much so. Those same entities are conducting the same kind of activity within the United States. And that is concerning um, because the scope can be that much larger. There's that much more money to be had and support to be gained. Because the, the true um, force behind the West is the United States. The ultimate goal is to undermine the United States. That is, that is what China is trying to do. They have a plan for world domination by 2049. So the distraction techniques, we will see people being called racist uh, when we're talking about uh, political platforms. The CCP is communism. We're not talking about race at all. 
has nothing to do with that. Um, lawfare is another way that, that, that uh, the CCP will come after people. They will hire the best lawyers and law firms, and we've seen it in Canada over and over again. We're seeing it in the United States as well. Uh, so there are these um, tactics, techniques, and procedures that the CCP, the United Front Work Department, um, and, and all of their allies use to undermine any efforts to call them out, subvert them, um, try to stop them. And they're doing a good job. I mean, it's been 25 years, and suddenly now people are interested again. Well, you know, case in point, Sidewinder was sidelined, right, way back when, although then this sort of the full version of it was leaked later on. Um, we had, you know, your various, uh, I guess, units uh, along the way, right, mm -hmm. that were suddenly there was a lot less interest in them after you got to a certain point. Um, what happened to Operation Dragonlord? So that's a, that's a very good question. And I think that's something that should be raised again to see what happened um, and, and where the initiative was lost. They're, they're stating in, you know, in this document that there's a war going on. And there is a war going on. We're at war with China. Canada's at war with China, certainly. Canada just doesn't realize it. Um, if we just look at the cyber alone, 3,000 attacks per minute in the province that I'm from on government infrastructure from the CCP, from the People's Liberation Army. The United States, I'm certain, has, has similar things, especially in the cyber domain. But this hybrid warfare piece is not kinetic. It is not um, conventional. So we don't see the conflict and the awareness from uh, the, you know, the public is that this is, you know, this is corporate, this is business. And they're not wrong. But there's intent to it. it. This is not organic. This is not holistic. This is uh, a direct attempt by the Chinese to take control. And, and it is about control. Follow the money is a great term when you're looking at money laundering. But when we're talking about hybrid warfare, it's about control. Controlling the narrative and controlling industry, controlling trade agreements. Uh, all of it is about control. And that is my greatest fear, um, because I see that control getting stronger every day. So it's very interesting that Dragonlord uh, basically identifies the fact that the U.S. is at war. That's amazing because that was way, way ahead of its time. This idea, we have this documentary called The Final War. Yes. Right. And The Final War is really about exactly what you talked about. It's the CCP's plan to dominate ideally without firing a shot, but using all the different forms of uh, persuasion, influence, propaganda, money and military and so forth. Now, it seems like here in the US, it's taken people quite a bit of time to grasp that these, all these types of different tools, like the lawfare and so forth that you mentioned, so many different tools of warfare are actually warfare yes. and not just you know business Correct. <laughs> or something like that. This is, of course, what General Spaulding has been advocating for yes. the past few years. It's obviously the same in Canada fr from our discussion here. Does it feel to you like we're remotely ready to face this at this point? I think the fact that the infiltration is so, um, so large and so great, the scope and the depth of that infiltration is difficult for people to understand. And the, um, uh, the concept of boiling the frog uh, slowly 
so he doesn't jump out, uh, is exactly what's been taking place. The Chinese work on a much longer um, cycle than we do, 30-year cycles. And you know, we're looking at the next election, and we're focused on, on a lot of things to, to try to keep us in power. When you have that kind of control, and Xi has consolidated power, you know, they have time. And this has been sped up considerably. As a matter of fact, some people have actually told Xi this isn't the right time, that you're not supposed to do this. But the analysts that I've been speaking with feel that he has, um, it's not just ego, but he feels that in his legacy, he wants to achieve these things. He wants to surpass Mao. He wants to, to be this figure that China will remember, that he's made this change globally. It's his time, and he's, he's rapidly moving towards it. Um, but in the West, w it's business as usual. We have a quality of life that is, that is great. You know, in Canada, if it doesn't start to impact us, and this is, this is part of the reason that I think this awareness is coming, Canada is now starting to feel the crunch with the recession, with um, you know, our economy struggling. And China was there to support Canada in this, in, in this economic sense. Unfortunately, Canadians believe everyone has good intentions, and we don't, don't think that someone would have ill intent towards us, not realizing Canada's sitting on a vast natural resource um, reserve from oil, LNG, forestry, fresh water. I believe we're, like, we have the most fresh water in the world. Why wouldn't a country want to come here? China's looking at, they have uh, 20 nuclear icebreakers being made, and they've laid claims to the Arctic uh, for, for mineral resources and other things. Why? Why would they do that? They don't have a need for any icebreakers. So there is definitely a plan for Canada um, and North America. And when you have a population that, that needs that, you know, the illegal fishing piece because China imports most of its food, there's a lot of strategic pieces at play. South China Sea is one of the, the largest choke points in the world. Um, and by choke point, I mean that is where the flow of goods come through, namely oil and gas that come from Iran and, and the Gulf region through the Malacca Straits. Um, and that is coming to China and Japan. Um, not as much comes to the West, but it's a necessary piece. So controlling that is vitally important. Um, but in the West, Canadians and Americans aren't as concerned about these things because they're not touching them at home in that sense. Canada's starting to feel it, though. Canada's starting to realize we can't afford real estate. Vancouver's the most expensive place in the world for real estate. People cannot afford to live there. They have to leave to be able to afford it, and they're moving to provinces that are ice cold because they've had to go north. And now people are starting to go, hey, why? Why is that? Is that the government? Is that... What's the cause of this? So the root cause is now being you know, unveiled, if you will, and they're looking for those answers. And this is, you know, really the start of an awareness within North America about who the real threats are. You mentioned the illegal fishing, so very quickly, Certainly. right? Th this is, you know, kind of a profoundly massive thing that's happening that the CCP is engaged in. And why don't you just briefly tell me about that? This is, this is an interesting topic because it's actually something that came up. I mentioned the think tanks I was holding on a military base and I brought in the Five Eyes intelligence groups um, to discuss these things. And New Zealand um, really brought forward um, some concerns, although all of the Five Eyes have been concerned about this. China has a, a massive illegal fishing fleet that goes around the world 
collecting and um, grasping all of the, the fish that they can find. They surrounded the Galapagos Islands. Um, and it was reported on, and it was a blip in the news. But this happens everywhere. Uh, so they're going around, and they're illegal fishing, and then not much can be done about it. Uh, so it's probably, in my estimation, in the trillions of dollars. It's the largest illicit activity in the world. And they're getting away with it, and they can do it. And that's, if we can't figure that out, then we're in some deep trouble. Talking about, you know, hybrid warfare and unrestricted warfare, we're also very aware that the, these fishing boats also are kind of equipped to support the Chinese Navy, right? And sort of with the, with the idea that they may need to be called upon at any time. They act as, like, I guess, like a kind of reserve or something. They're a militia, like yes. Yeah. So, so they, yeah, they, they actually bring their uniforms in their fishing boats. Um, this is extensively used in the South China Sea. Um, the Philippines and, and other countries are experiencing, um, you know, their vessels are surrounded and they're fishing vessels, but then they put their vests on and they call the Chinese military in. So the PLAN, the People's Liberation Army Navy, um, and they'll come after. They've fired on, on vessels. They've uh, forced them to flee the area. Um, they've, they've captured their, their cargo, lots of different things um, and incidents that have occurred with that. So they are a militia. They are um, operating in both areas, both the, the civilian world of, of fishing, and then in order to control that area, they throw on their militia uniform and have the backing of the, of the CCP. One thing that is a very devastating element of this asymmetric hybrid warfare, unrestricted warfare, yes. is the fentanyl. Right? And something that you told me that I wasn't aware of, frankly, was that 25 to 35 percent, in your words, of the fentanyl coming to the U.S. is actually coming through the Canadian border. It's coming from the north through Vancouver, not from the south, which is you typically only hear about the Mexican border. Yes, the, um, the threat from, from Mexico has been you know, highly publicized. There's movies about it. Um, you know, the Sicario movie and that kind of thing. And so it's um, the El Chapo's and, and this, it's almost romanticized in a sense. And there has been some documentary filmmaking that's explained that, yes, there's a connection between China and Mexico and, and you know, they, they've, they've taught them how to do certain things, how to create fentanyl. What isn't really known is that the epicenter for fentanyl is Vancouver. We were having, like I mentioned earlier, 900 deaths a year of fentanyl overdose. Because we are the direct shipping lane from China to North America, the shortest route coming into Prince Rupert, which is just north of Vancouver, um, we are having massive quantities of precursors being sent to individuals that we know are connected to um, illicit activity in the creation of fentanyl. And Canada, uh, pardon me, Vancouver is known as a transshipment point, both um, across the Pacific to Japan, Australia, and others, um, but, but also to the United States. And being able to create something in Canada um, with a border that is the largest undefended border in the world, uh, with our largest trading partner, makes it quite easy to get that product into the US. Um, and there's starting to be a little more awareness, but again, enforcement in Canada, stopping it before it can get there, um, is, is just not happening. So knowing everything you know, um, I mean, what's, what, what's the worst case scenario here? The worst case scenario, I think, is 
after gaining traction and, and, and getting people aware of the threat from China, that we put our head back in the sand. And uh, it's brushed off as, as um, conspiracy theory. Um, what keeps me up at night is that we are going to lose uh, our, our, our ways, uh, our means, everything. Um, our sovereignty? Our sovereignty. That, that is all in jeopardy right now. Uh, and the United States is just as in jeopardy as Canada is, uh, especially with the fact that we have this saturation that I'm talking about in Canada. What, what are you going to do if we go kinetic? If something happens in the South China Sea or Taiwan, and suddenly the United States goes to war, which means the Allies go to war, um, now, you're in a, now you're in an actual conflict. And we have all of our critical infrastructure compromised, our politicians have been leveraged, um, every aspect of our society has been touched. How are we going to reverse that? And in, in what time frame will that, will that take place? We've had 25 years of someone trying to raise awareness and it's been shut out in the name of, I'd like to, you know, make money. Um, and, you know, it's, it's more greed than anything. So hopefully, you know, we, we can make a difference and, and change that. So, you know, in the building behind you, uh, there's now, well, not sitting at this moment, but there's a committee that basically is set up to deal with strategic competition with communist China, for example. Um, there's actually a number of committees that are looking at the China threat as we speak. What, what is it that you would hope you can accomplish with your information while you're here? I think I'm hoping that um, the traction that we're starting to see in Canada, um, you know, lights a flame and that flame can be fanned by the rest of the five eyes, namely the United States, because the United States is really um, the powerhouse within the five eyes, uh, especially in the intelligence world. Um, they have the, the most resources, um, most collection assets, um, the greatest power to influence. So gaining that inf information and um, having the understanding of how impactful all of these different levels are and that there's a concerted effort to do that. That it's not just some scientist has, has collected some information and has sent it back to China, um, dual-use technology, um, all of those pieces are there, but there's a concerted effort. It's coordinated, and that, that information is going back to the motherland, back to where it's being consolidated um, and exploited. Intellectual property, all those things are uh, impacting the private sector, but also the public sector. Knowledge is being sucked out of, of uh, the West. Um, innovation is being sucked out of the West in exchange, uh, most of the time, for money. and. We need to start to look inward at how we can defend against all of those efforts. Part of it is this decoupling piece that I'm not against. Um, you have to take a stand at some point, and I think that stand is starting to form now. Well, Scott McGregor, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate your time. Thank you all for joining Scott McGregor and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick.